Marketing is one of the most controversial ideas of modern times. According to its critics, it makes us more materialistic. It manipulates us. It makes us fat and unhealthy, and it makes us drive too quickly. Hence, the recent emergence of a body of thought called critical marketing, which questions marketing practices, which otherwise might be taken for granted. I'm Terry O'Sullivan from the Open University Business School. And I'm very pleased to be discussing these issues with our professor of social marketing, Jared Hastings. Jared, what do you mean by the term critical marketing? I think it's just a matter of of looking with a, uh, an informed eye at what is going on in the world about us, and part of that is what is going on in the business sector, which, on the one hand, is the origin of a lot of the wealth that we have, but on the other hand, is also something that has an enormous influence on our lives and what we consume. And you know, just to take one very bold and uh, bold example. If we think of the problems of global warming and overconsumption, you know, it is marketing that is driving a lot of that consumption. And so at the very least, it is sensible to give pause and think about what is going on. What about the argument that there's something inherently manipulative about marketing itself, however good its intentions, for example? So social marketing could be seen as part of the problem. I think there is that danger and and it's easy for it to spin into a manipulative relationship. But the word relationship is the important one, I think, that if you're really going to succeed as a marketer, you have to look after your customers. And if you're going to succeed as a social marketer, you equally have to look after them. And looking after them has to include a degree of respect. Where marketing goes wrong in the commercial sector is where that respect has, for some reason, gone astray. And the, you know, the, the most um, blatant example of that would be in the case of tobacco companies, where we now know, and we've known for 20 years, they kill one in two of their long-term customers. You know, that is a, a big journey away from respect. People who criticise marketing tend to see it as something modern, dating from the early 20th century, But isn't marketing something that people have been doing for good or for evil throughout history? It is. And you could argue, without getting too uh, fanciful, that uh, marketing in many ways is what uh, distinguishes us from the animals in that I I think marketing began when the human species first realised that there was some benefit in working collectively, that, you know, you might be better at chasing the dinosaur, but I was better at clubbing it to death. Therefore, if we did some sort of deal, we'd both be better off. And it's, it's that doing of a deal, that notion of exchange, which when taken over a period of time becomes the building up of a relationship that's at the core of marketing. What's changed in the last century is the, the, the power and, and amount of effort that's put into marketing and put into marketing not on a one-to-one basis but on a, a mass societal level basis, which leaves us in a position where we've got uh, marketing organisations, i.e. corporations that are bigger than countries and yet have none of the democratic checks and balances in place. They are immensely powerful. With major global companies like Shell, for example, sometimes what they're doing is replacing some of the services that governments might be expected to provide in some of their markets. I'm thinking of uh, some of the developing countries where Shell has played a very major role in providing healthcare and education facilities. Major companies do a lot of things that are very good in society around the world. So part of the power that enables them to do that is is their marketing clout. I think we might be getting into difficulties here because we're using too crude a term when we talk about good. 
certainly major corporations can and do do things that bring benefits to society. So to take a, a particularly contentious example, Philip Morris invests a lot in domestic violence um, campaigns to provide shelters for battered women, for example. You know, clearly a good thing. But are Philip Morris in a position to make judgments about what social needs society has and where that money should be invested or should that be democratically elected governments doing proper needs assessments and deciding that you know the problems of racial abuse for example also require a, a lot of investment in them rather than a corporation who will um, a cynic might say pick things that are particularly sexy from a PR point of view rather than things that reflect people's real needs and in this sense, what I'm saying isn't particularly radical. It's actually quite uh, conservative in the sense that the business of business is business, as Milton Friedman said. And he also pointed out that companies are not necessarily the best people to make judgments about what the social needs of society are. And I would agree with him on that one. Is there a danger that social marketers are all going to become civil servants by default then? How do you mean civil service? Because by? you're saying that companies can't set the agenda for what's seen as beneficial social change. Therefore, I take it that you mean that governments have to. And the way that government policy is put into place is through various initiatives using the civil service, for example. And yeah, I, yeah I, take, I take what you mean, yes. yes. Um, I think at the risk of sounding like Sir Humphrey, I would say civil servants don't make those decisions. The elected representatives should be making those decisions and, and civil servants have the job of carrying them through. But it, you, you raise a, a really vital issue here. It is probably the most fundamental ethical issue for social marketers. Who decides which behaviours should be changed? And I think marketing, whether in the commercial sector or social sector, is amoral. And we should come to it with great care and make sure that we have very clear and morally acceptable decision-making processes for setting priorities. And it's, it, it's absolutely vital. Well, you describe it as amoral. I think a lot of people who have seen the growth of social marketing and delivering government policy might feel that it's a little bit more like immoral because it's using mechanisms, if you like, albeit exchange mechanisms, which do imply an unequal relationship between the marketer and the consumer, whereas democracy, which I think these old-fashioned types would rather see taking place, actually puts the government at the mercy of the consumer in that sense. Governments are accountable to the electorate on a regular basis. Mm. Companies are accountable to their shareholders, but their shareholders are citizens too. So don't you think that there's a danger that by taking the moral high ground, critical marketers will actually alienate their commercial peers to the extent where it becomes very, very difficult to work with them. There's certainly a danger of that. And I, I think if we get to a place where we really start to think of business as demonic, um, I think that's quite dangerous because business is what underpins wealth creation it is, I would argue, one of the things that separates us from the animals. You know, that's the doing of deals, the exchanging that goes with that are, are all very positive things. But nonetheless, they are very powerful operators in society. So we should look critically at what they are doing. And indeed, if you think of the, the amount of resource and effort and capacity that goes into making us feel good about corporations, you know, the beverage alcohol industry spends £800 million a year boosting its own image one way or another. 
And, you know, you have the odd little squeaky-voiced academic coming up and say, well, maybe that's uh, doing some things that aren't so good. And, you know, that, that is, you know, if you're talking about equality of effort, I think, you know, the corporations are not going to be shaking in their boots at this point. They, they, uh, but we really do need to uh, raise those sorts of questions. Related to what you're saying, I think there's, a, there's another point, and, and that is, you know, whenever you start to talk about relationships and exchange, um, then you raise a really important word, which is power, and how much power the respective agents in those relationships have. And whenever you get a situation where there's an imbalance of power, then likely things will tip into a manipulative situation. And you've got to watch that very carefully. I think, however, there's an equal pressure on the marketer that if they get that wrong, even when they are trying to manipulate, if they get that wrong, they very often it will backfire on them. And I, I think sometimes social marketers fall into that trap. They think they can push people into doing things rather than persuade them. And as a result, their campaigns do not succeed. Because ultimately, what you're trying to do as a marketer, whether social or commercial, is get people on side. You want people to be shoulder to shoulder to, you know, have joint ownership. You know, indeed, the the commercial sector now talks quite unashamedly and seriously about the co-creation of value. You know, it's not, you know, Coke isn't the sole owner of the Coca-Cola brand. It also belongs to everybody, all their customers. It's in their customers' heads and hearts. And when they forget that, as they have done on one or two occasions in the past, they come to grief. So even with all their power, they have to retain that degree of humility. And it's, it's an odd truth that, you know, these corporations are massive. They are fantastically powerful. They are bigger than small countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they are also um, vulnerable to consumers turning around saying, well, I've had enough of you and we, we won't buy your product anymore. And, you know, the, the market is littered with people who have got arrogant and, and forgotten that basic truth. So they have their power, but they have to keep a weather eye on what they are doing. As soon as they get complacent, they are doomed. So it's a difficult combination to, to match in the social sector because I, th- I think that the social sector is also prone to feeling overly powerful and, you know, uh, overly right you know, so, so they they begin by asking us to change our behaviour, and when we don't listen and do what they say, they start to shout, rather than saying, "Well, if they're not changing, maybe they've got good reasons for not changing. We should understand those first and and, and respect those and build on that, and you know, be much more evolutionary about what we're doing rather than immediately resorting to um, uh, pressurising people, slapping them around the lugs, and saying, "Get on with it. We should we should maybe listen more." And, and the commercial sector, paradoxically balances its power with with that um, humility. Marketers usually steer away from politics, at least uh, on the surface. Would you say that critical marketing is a political process? What do you mean by political process? I'm thinking of the way that critical marketing addresses not only the idea of marketing as it goes on, but also the way that critical marketers want to get involved in policy debates further up the stream. Oh, right. I I understand. Um, I would utterly and absolutely refute your suggestion that business does not get involved in politics then. It absolutely does. That's what corporate social responsibility is about. It's it's what advocacy is about. It's what corporate governance is about. It's, you know, it's what breakfast at number 10 is about. It's, you know, whenever I have been involved in policy discussions at a senior level, at a, you know, a Scottish level, a British level, a European level, a global level, the public health, the social advocates have also always been outnumbered 50 to 1 by very nicely besuited 
very well-resourced representatives of the commercial sector. So the idea that they're not involved with policymakers and decision-makers and stakeholders is, is, is nonsense. So similarly, critical marketing has to become political, would you say? Absolutely. And it, it, in a sense, you know, quite right too. It's, you know, all that um, political marketing in that sense is recognising that our decisions are not just a function of us as individuals, but also the social context in which we find ourselves. So if we want kids to avoid um, taking up smoking, yes, we should be telling about the health consequences and empowering them to make individual decisions about their smoking behaviour. But we should also recognise that if, you know, you have a society where there's lots of advertising for tobacco, that's going to impinge on their freedom to make a decision because it's going to impact their sense of the normalcy of smoking and the acceptability of smoking. And, you know, it's well established in that instance that you know, the removal of advertising will reduce the amount of teenage smoking that's going on. And then you factor on top of that, um, going back to the issue of power, you know, people's wealth and the equalities in society. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that poor people in Britain die decades before rich people. You know, and that's not to do with poor people being stupid or aberrant. It's to do with the fact that the conditions you find yourself in as a poor person are much less sympathetic than the position you find yourself in as a prosperous person in Britain. And so you know, to focus just on the individual not only becomes ineffective, it becomes damn immoral. Do you think that a critical approach to marketing could neglect the amount of good things that businesses do in society through marketing? I certainly think there's a danger here that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's important to recognise that critical thinking is not just um, about finding what's wrong with what's going on in the world. It's also about learning from what's good that's going on in the world. And the very existence of social marketing, in fact, is doffing the cap to the fact that marketers know a lot about behaviour change and how we can encourage people down positive as well as negative behavioural paths. And one, one neat example of that, for example, would be the whole area of dental hygiene, which uh, the commercial sector has done so well, I would submit, that the dental public health tends not now to run campaigns on brushing your teeth and so on, because they, they, they really don't need to. The, the commercial sector is handling that very well, thank you. However, the, the, the sort of the grit in the, in the oyster, if you will, or the, the, uh, the speck in the, uh, in the eye there is that, you know, the toothpaste manufacturers are in these campaigns not to improve dental health. They're running it to improve sales of, of their, their products. And so there is always that tension there. So it still needs to be watched that, you know, are, are uh, toothpaste manufacturers, for example, selling us things that we don't need? You know, is, is there a need for fluoridated toothpaste when we have fluoridated water or whatever it might be. So we, we just need to watch that uh, fact that a commercial operator is doing things for its shareholders, not the general public. But yeah, there's a lot we can learn from them. There's a lot of things we can do. And with adequate regulation, this isn't an argument here for doing away with business. I don't think there's any evidence that that would work. You know, what happened behind the Iron Curtain was, was not a success. But I think it does raise questions about how free business should be to do just what it wants and to address its own agendas and to feed its own shareholders rather than uh, the population as a whole. If you want to get into a bigger philosophical argument and, you know, ha happy to, to go there, although it, it's a very big area, I think there are issues about the impact of capitalism, the ownership of the means of production and to the extent to which that alienates and, and turns into passive consumers, um, people who, you know, a generation ago might have been more proactive. So, you know, Richard Sennett's work on the nature of society now where people tend to define themselves not 
in terms of what they produce, you know, the cooper who made barrels or, or whatever it was, um, but in terms of what they consume and whether we're comfortable with that, I think is that's a much more fundamental question that's maybe beyond our remit, but it, it's worth just marking it up there as something to debate. I think that's a very interesting point, possibly one that we don't have time to go into, but it certainly provides an interesting backdrop to the critical marketing efforts. Seems to me that you have, as social marketers, got a number of um, major industries on the run at the moment, most notably tobacco, at least in the UK. I'm just wondering if you ever envisage a situation where you're going to run out of targets. No, not in the near future. I think, well, first of all, just take a UK perspective and the most extreme one, which is tobacco, as you say. Um, I think plausibly now, and you know, the Department of Health has said this, um, uh, expert academics in the field have said this, you know, we are looking at a time now when smoking will cease in Britain. You know, only a fifth of the population smoke and that's been going steadily down. And there is a, a social patterning of that. So, you know, rich people have stopped smoking and middle class people have stopped smoking. Working class and poorer people have been more reluctant to do so, but they are catching up and, and doing so. So there is a time when uh, I think, you know, in a generation's time when we will have such low numbers that will virtually cease to exist. But, and it's an enormous but, if we, if we pan out and look on a global level, the tobacco companies still continue to make fantastic profits. You know, they, they boast about how good their stock is and what a good investment it is. And I was just um, at a meeting of the World Health Organization recently where they were talking about the Middle East and the Middle Eastern countries were all represented there. And while smoking is beginning to steady there in the older generation, the new generations coming up, particularly the young women are smoking actually more than their their mothers did because it was so socially unacceptable for their mothers to smoke. And that's relatively speaking that those controls have been loosened. And believe you me, the tobacco industry is looking on those trends and looking to exploit them as actively and as powerfully as it can. And um, history suggests that they will at least for a time succeed. So we do need to be vigilant and we can't relax and say job done. It's a long, long way from that. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Jared Hastings. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.